Matthew 6, 6 says, Jesus speaking here, he says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Can I be honest with you today? I like asking that question. What are you going to say? No, don't be honest. Lie to me. But prayer is hard for me. My personality likes check marks, right? I love lists. I love scratching things off those lists. If you look at my desk, there's sticky notes all over them. And every Monday morning, I, put, I pull out one of those sticky notes and I write my list of things that I have to do for the week. Uh, the next upcoming sermon, I need to look over that. I write a new sermon every week. I get my life group together. I do the school stuff I need to do. And I write these things all down. But on the other side, I write Bible, pray, and read. And my goal for those three words is that every day in the office, I'm able to put a check mark by those things, that I adequately covered those things every single day. With Bible reading, I can read six verses and study them out, read some commentaries and see what other uh, theologians are thinking about these passages and write a paragraph or two out about what that means and how I can apply it, let it sink in, and just add it to my faith. Check. With, uh, with reading of books, I can do that. I try and read run, one chapter a day of a book that will help me be a better pastor or father or husband. One chapter a day, check. But no matter how much I pray, whether it's 10 minutes or 45 minutes, I never really feel like I should put a check mark next to prayer. Did I pray long enough? I want to please God. I want a sweet relationship with him. Did I hit adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication? I really, I'm not doing it out of duty. I know prayer is important. I desperately want to be good at prayer. And I try different things and I read the Psalms and I journal and I'll read other people's prayers to help stir up my mind and, and focus my heart. But it's not really weird to feel that way. Because... Have you ever really talked to a friend long enough, right? Have you ever really communicated enough for a day with your spouse and told them everything that they needed to know? Can you ever really say, I communicated well enough with my kids, I don't need to talk to them the rest of the day? Some of us feel that way, but... No, because unlike Bible reading and studying of godly books... Prayer is not shoving knowledge into my brain and now I'm done. No, prayer takes listening and patience and waiting and patience and being vulnerable and searching your heart and offering yourself and receiving instruction and then constantly coming back. Prayer shouldn't be, dear Lord, amen, I'll see you tomorrow. No, prayer should be, Dear Lord, amen, just a minute, I'll be right back. All throughout the day. And for years and years, this is what the church did. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Where they would pray every morning and at noon and at evening. Again, not for the sake of duty, but because you can never accomplish prayer. And that makes prayer hard for me. But it's worth it. And I try again. 
and I come back and I don't give up. And sometimes it's so sweet and other times it's a struggle, but it is always worth it. We also should be sure not to neglect letting our scripture reading lead us to prayer. Reading the word and marveling at God's goodness and holding our life up uh, to its instruction and asking God to help us add that to our lives. And then pushing our heart to pray for those around us that are in need. A thousand years ago, Anselm of Canterbury wrote this. Come now, little man, turn aside for a while from your daily employment. Escape for a moment from the tumult of your thoughts. Put aside your weighty cares and let your burdensome distractions wait. Free yourself for a while for God and rest a while in him. Enter into the inner chamber of your soul and shut out everything except God and that which can help you in seeking him. And when you have shut the door, seek him now. My whole heart says to God, I seek your face, Lord. It is your face I seek. You are too busy and your responsibilities too weighty and your temptations too strong for you not to pray. So let's read this passage again in Matthew 6, 6. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This passage here is right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and his followers. And then all this multitude of other people are listening in too. And these words, when you pray, stand out because Jesus is making it clear that if you are a follower of him, you're going to pray. It's a given. He doesn't try and convince you that you need to pray. He says, hey, when you pray. And maybe that's where you are today. And that's okay. It's good to recognize this is where I'm at. And you might need to start right now committing to just praying every day and throughout the day. Often spending time with the Lord, talking and listening. Checking in throughout the day. Martin Luther said, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need prayer to stay alive spiritually. We talked a lot recently about praying in community, and that is important for us to pray together. But although our faith is communal, it's also intensely personal. And Jesus made it clear in the verses preceding this verse that we just read here in Matthew 6 that the Pharisees had it all wrong. And they had practiced righteousness and feeding the needy and prayer, but they only did it in front of people. Their faith was performative. And on the inside, they were hypocrites. Their faith was in public, but it wasn't real in private. It wasn't authentic. It was just a show. Be honest, you've been there too. So have I. We pace the smile on when we aren't right on the inside. But Jesus says here to go and shut your doors and pray personal prayers and your father will hear you and you 
will benefit from it. Have you ever opened a box of chocolate, right? And you take a bite, and it's full of cough syrup. Not really, but basically, right? It's a cherry or strawberry or something like that, and it's just gross. What a waste. You cover this thing that is just gross. If we're not careful, that's sometimes how our life is. Nice and sweet on the inside, but sour and bitter. Uh, excuse me, nice and sweet on the outside, but sour and bitter on the inside. But personal time alone in Scripture and prayer and confession help make us sweet all the way through. Not through our own power, but through God's power and for the glory of Jesus. Jesus goes on in this next verse, Matthew 6, 7. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is opening our heart to God. Prayer isn't about how you sound. It's not about flowery words or using Christianese words as if prayer is some superstitious spell. No, prayer is being honest with the one that made you. You have nothing to hide from God. There's nothing that he does not already know about you. So come to him with what you have. We have enough superficial Christians. We need authentic Christians that aren't perfect, but they're sincere. So make time for unrushed prayer. And you'll tell a difference in you. And yes, God will answer those prayers, but even if the answer is no, there's no doubt you'll be better prepared to face the hardships in your life and the aggravations of your day. Jesus said, when you pray, it's a given, so pray. It doesn't need to be perfect, just do it. You've heard me say before that God can calm the storm or it can calm you in the storm, and prayer is what puts that into play. The prophet Elijah was a man of prayer. Ahab was the king at that time, 900 years before Christ, and Ahab was wicked, and so was his queen Jezebel. Queen, uh, king Ahab led Israel toward worshiping false god. His wife uh, Jezebel was uh, someone that had an innocent man named Naboth killed just so that she could have his vineyard. She was real into grapes. First uh, Kings 16.30 tells us that Ahab was one of the worst kings that Israel had ever had. But the prophet Elijah stood up to King Ahab. In First Kings 18.21, Elijah preached to these people that they needed to choose between the true God and their pagan, uh, their pagan false gods like Baal. In verse 21, it says, Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? you got to choose. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. We can't follow God and other things. You can't be double-minded. If we're like that, the Bible says we are unstable. But the people of Israel here, they didn't respond. 
to this challenge that Elijah had laid out of choosing. Maybe they wanted to see who was going to win this power struggle between Elijah and Ahab and God and Baal. In verse 23, we see the prophet Elijah challenge the 450 pagan prophets of Ahab to a contest to see whose God was listening. Elijah says, let let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and to cut it into pieces and to lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of, of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. See, it was just Elijah against these enemies of God, hundreds of them. And who's going to win this showdown? Whoever's God would answer this prayer to light their sacrifice with fire wins. So the 450 prophets of Baal went first and they sacrificed the bull and they prayed from morning until noon, but nothing happened. And they raved and they cut themselves and and they continued to cry out to Baal, but nothing happened. And this is Elijah's response. And if you think that sarcasm is always bad, this verse should be a good indicator that that's not true. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Cry aloud, he says about Baal, for he is God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Does anybody know what that means? I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves uh, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because Baal wasn't real. Now it's Elijah's turn. And he rebuilds the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. This wicked king, Ahab, had led them to turn away from God. So first thing first, uh, Elijah went setting things right that were wrong, right? And going back to what God had told them to do. So he rebuilds this altar. And then Elijah does something weird. He gets help filling up four huge jars with water. And you should know that at this time, this land was in the middle of a seven-year drought. And droughts are a big deal even today. I think we, we talked yesterday about there being a burn ban because there wasn't enough water. And droughts are a big deal in the Midwest, or even more so in other countries. Because things need water. How many of you have killed a lot of plants in your day because you haven't given them water? Be honest, you're all murderers. <laughs> you need water. Life needs water. Water to wash our clothes we need, water to clean wounds or to cook with. They should be limiting water. It's one of those situations where you shouldn't water your lawn or wash your car. And here Elijah takes these four huge jars of water and he's dumping them on this altar. And then he does it two more times. Water is the costliest thing that Elijah could find at this moment. 
They needed water, and they were lost without water. Tyler Statton says this, The most profound act of worship and faith occurs before a word of prayer when this prophet pours out a cistern of the most precious national commodity over the wood. The words of David echo over the scene, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Elijah is offering God the most lavish sacrifice he could possibly bring. And that's significant. So these other prophets had prayed all day, cut themselves, this whole big rigmarole. Anybody know how to spell that? Elijah prays two sentences in 1 Kings 20, 36. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The altar was rebuilt. A costly sacrifice was given and God's fire fell. And now the people decide they want to make a decision up, right? Before they weren't so sure which side they wanted to be on. But now they're face down crying out, the Lord, he is God. And by now it was night and the fire falling from heaven would have been a glorious display as it consumed the water and the wood and the offering and even the altar itself. I threw up a a painting, I think, picture of this fire falling. Obviously, you know, that's a a recreation, but just imagine the glory of this at night as the prophets of Baal have prayed all day and got nothing. But God showed his power. And it wasn't about Elijah's prayer that it was particularly powerful, although it did glorify God. It was all about God and his power. It wasn't about, this prayer of Elijah wasn't about what he wanted or even what he needed. It was simply a prayer for God to have his way and for more people to give him the worship that he deserves. The Lord, he is God. Now, their God, Baal, was the God of fertility, but also the God of rain and dew. And Elijah had prayed before this at the beginning of the seven-year drought for it not to rain so that the people would call back to their God. And it happened. And later, at the end of that seven years, he would pray for it to rain again. And it's showing us that Baal, this God of rain and dew, was impotent and weak, and God had all the power over all creation. And this was a great victory But what we don't see here is that before this victory, Elijah was alone in the wilderness by himself, running for his life from the king, living by a brook, which sounds pretty nice, but then the brook dried up. 
See, even the life of this prophet that God used to show his power through by raising people from the dead and calling down fire from heaven had times in his life when he felt alone and he had little and he had to wait. Times when he was where God wanted him to be, doing what God wanted him to do, but things weren't easy. And after this great display of God's power and this fire falling from heaven, King Ahab and Jezebel come after Elijah even more. They've been embarrassed and they've been just put in their place and they want to kill Elijah and he runs through the wilderness He hides in a cave and he's alone again. Then he falls into a deeper depression. And he even talks about wanting to die. But God comes and ministers to him again. And we see this dance between God and Elijah. It's not always easy, but Elijah is not alone. And he goes back to God in prayer. And I don't know where you are today, but there's some areas in my life that I would be so excited for God to send fire down from heaven and just fix them. There's some people in my life that I love, that I pray for, that they would become followers of Jesus. There's some people that I wish God would heal and just raise up. But right now with those things, I'm by the brook. Sometimes I feel alone and like things are drying up, but I'm not alone, just like Elijah wasn't. And God took care of Elijah in the wilderness. He fed him and he provided him water and you are not alone today. So don't give up on prayer. Perhaps that fire is about to fall at any moment and God fix, uh, will fix your situation. Or perhaps God will light a fire in you of passion for him and giving you peace that passes all understanding. And it might not be everything that you would do or what you've always wanted, but God knows what he is doing. And we can prepare for it in the now by fixing what's broken in us that should be holy, confronting our own sin and giving it to God to heal. The Bible calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this altar and this temple in the Old Testament, that's us. And there may be some things in us that we need to consecrate and give over to God. Maybe that altar in us needs to be rebuilt. Something that idolatry has turned, uh, has, has crushed. Whether it's sin or apathy or pride. Maybe those idols need to fall. And an altar to God be built back up. We see here the example not to offer God anything that costs us nothing. And that's easy for us as American Christians to offer God things that cost us nothing. In other countries where you might be persecuted or might be disowned by your family, when you come and and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, it means something. But here it's so easy for us to just bring our lowest and the smallest amount that we can by getting by. Don't offer God something that costs you nothing. 
Elijah poured out a costly sacrifice on that altar. And I don't know whether it's your time or your talents or your treasures, but God deserves a sacrifice of your praise. And worship costs us something. If you've been spiritually dry and prayer is hard, don't start off with a list of things you want. Pray like Elijah and lift up the name of your God and ask for his will to be done and his name to be glorified and see if your prayer life doesn't change. See, Jesus says, when you pray, it's a given. So pray. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to spend some time here this morning in prayer. And I know for some of us that might be different and weird and uncomfortable, but it's a good uncomfortable. We're going to modify this prayer of Elijah and let it be a jumping off point to stir up our prayer life and remind ourselves who is the star of the show and whose purposes are supreme. So we're going to put this prayer of Elijah up on the screen. It's also in your notes in the app if you want to pull it up there as well. We're going to take five or eight minutes and, and pray this prayer and put on some instrumental music. Now, these words aren't magic. It only has meaning as far as our sincerity goes. We're going to bow our heads in just a second and call out to God. And remind ourselves who's in charge. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God of this earth and that I am your servant and that I want to do all the things that your word says. Work in my life, O Lord. Answer me that the people around me may know that you, O Lord, are God and turn their hearts towards you. Let's play some of that soft music and let's bow our heads. Let's spend some real time in prayer. Starting off where we need to with who is in charge.